We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we are very happy to be joined by Alex Berenson. He's the author of the new book, Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government, rights and lives. You also should make sure to subscribe to his Substack. It's called Unreported Truths, and you can find it at substack.com. He's, of course, also the author of Tell Your Children, which is another fascinating book. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Emily. Yeah, absolutely. I'm admittedly one of those people whose eyes sort of glaze over when uh, the the sort of questions about spike proteins and uh, vaccine efficacy start getting into the the nitty gritty. Um, But I found this book extremely readable and very, very interesting. Um, And one of the things I think makes it so compelling is that you're very open about your thought process, about what you learned over the course of uh, the pandemic, and especially especially how you started to pick up things on in, in earlier days. So you've been write about a lot. But looking back, what do you think is the biggest thing you got wrong during the pandemic? The biggest thing I got wrong was I thought there was a chance last year uh, that we that we would get to herd immunity with a relatively low level of reported infections. There was this, uh, there was this theory over the summer of 2020 that, um, you know, that possibly uh, that that was going to be sort of the end of it, that that summer wave was going to be the end of it in the U.S. and Europe, that uh, you know, there were going to be a lot of people that sort of cross uh, reactivity to other coronaviruses, and they weren't really going to need to be infected, or, or you know, or they couldn't even be infected. Um, and it turns out that that, that was not the case. Um, I mean, I, I didn't push that that hard, but I did write about it, and um, and, and it was more of the sort of speculative sense, like let's hope this is happening. But uh, but I was clearly I was clearly wrong about. You were really early to the questions about the efficacy of the mRNA vaccines. Were you, even so, were you surprised or or do you continue to be surprised um, about the, what what we actually learn every single day when we look at England, when we look at Israel? Um, Are you surprised at how this has, this year now where people are, have access to vaccines? um, Are you surprised how it's played out? Uh, yes, I'm, I, I am surprised that the failure happened so quickly and so completely. And my concerns about the vaccines were, uh, you know, early on about, well, I mean, it's, they, they found several different baskets, but the core concerns related to the fact that, um, you know, in elderly people, elderly people tend to have a less of an immune response to vaccines in general. And they were very, very few, and we know they're by far the highest risk from the coronavirus, and they were really not in the clinical trials. And so... You know, when I looked at that, I said to myself, there's a huge hole here. We do not really know um, how well these vaccines are going to protect elderly people. Um, and so, uh, you know, when we're, when we're rushing to get everyone vaccinated, we're vaccinating, you know, we're vaccinating people who aren't at great risk from this um, against, you know, against infection. I'm talking about younger people when we don't really, you know, when we know that they're not at great risk. And at the same time, the people who are at the most risk, we don't really know how well this is going to work. Um so, so, so that's proven to be true. What I didn't expect was that the vaccines, um, you know, after working for a couple months, would just fail, you know, almost completely uh, against infection and transmission. I, I assumed it would happen, but I was surprised, you know, I was surprised that Israel, you know, when the numbers started taking off in July, I, I wondered, you know, I thought to myself, you know, is this really going to continue day after day after day? And it did continue day after day after day. 
And, and I would say the other thing that I've been shocked about this year is the complete unwillingness of public health authorities and, and the company. Well, I expect it from the company, but I, the complete mm-hmm. unwillingness of public health authorities to talk honestly about what's happening and what the choices that vaccine failure leaves us with. So in other words, it, boosters clearly do, uh, you know, ramp up your antibodies again. There's no, there's no question about that. But that is not risk-free or cost-free. And since we know now that antibodies, you know, don't last very long, these vaccine-generated antibodies, we should be presenting people with, you know, with much more of a, of a question or of an open discussion of the uncertainties of what boosters mean. We fail to talk about the uncertainties of what the, you know, the two vaccine, the initial dosing regimen might be. And they completely, obviously, that's blown up in their faces terribly. And now they've doubled down and they have even less data on, you know, what a third dose and potential future doses might mean. And I mean, at some level, I mean, this is insanity because if they if they are wrong and the dangers are real here, you know, there, there are hundreds of millions of people whose lives uh, could be affected. I wonder if you also think the this is a challenge I think that that anti-establishment people face a lot and that conservatives certainly face a lot is that when you have to you're forced to spend a lot of time rebutting the narratives of the legacy media and of our institutions, which have, have largely been dominated by the left. Um, you almost are it, it's hard to sort of also be pro something in the sense that like I, I, I wonder if you agree this is something I've been thinking recently that people who are casting legitimate skepticism on all of the claims about the vaccine and the pandemic, um, we also do see that it is effective at at least preventing higher numbers of deaths on average. Do you think vaccine, like people who are at least uh, casting skepticism on all these claims about the vaccines, do you, do you see that that's also been sort of a different, a, a difficult balance in that like if you're elderly, um, you know, maybe the cost benefit analysis there is difficult, is different, but it's sort of difficult to have that conversation when you have to spend so much time rebutting claim after claim after claim um, in the mainstream narrative that uh, deserves to be debunked. Yeah, so I mean, I frame it just slightly differently. I, I broadly agree with that. So, so here's the thing: like, I am not a conspiracy theorist. Okay, I don't try to outrun the data. And you know, I have not been one of the people out there talking about nanoparticles or depopulation. Or, <laughs> but you, you know, go on Joe Rogan, Alex. <laughs> I do go on Joe Rogan because Joe Rogan won't have me. Yeah. So the people on the left, and even in the center, unfortunately, on this issue, who are the vaccine fanatics want to impute all these terrible motives to me, okay? And they want to say I've said things I haven't said. And then, you know, sometimes if I make a claim that, you know, is, uh, you know, for example, there's this debate about what some of the English data showed. Um, right, you know, right. In terms of fully vaccinated versus unvaccinated people in the under 60 age range, okay? So so we can have, you can have a conversation and say, you know what, you, there's something here that you misunderstood to me or, or that you should have explained better. And I'll say, okay. Like, and I did actually talk about this in a recent subsect. That is, that is actually correct. Your, your assessment is correct. But you are failing to acknowledge this, this other point. And that actually to me is a bigger issue in the data. Okay. So, so, so because, because I am so tarred, okay. And, 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 and people, you know, will not, uh, will not take my serious claims seriously and will not acknowledge that I'm very careful about, um, you know, what it is I say. I, uh, I you know, there's, there's times at which I'm, I think to myself, why don't I just become a conspiracy theorist? You know what? 
like I'll, you know, but, you know, take take Robert Kennedy's book, okay? And, right, right. You know, so so Kennedy is, I mean, he's significant. He's not a you know, he's not a crazy conspiracy theorist, but he is significantly further off in that direction than yes. I am. Like, and so that book is selling like man. Okay. And, and so it's sort of like, why don't I just go there? But I'm not going to go there because I'm a serious journalist, and I and I and I want to have a real debate about this. But it's what you say: the people on the other side want to marginalize me and everyone else who raises questions about this. Right, and that's yeah, and it's interesting. I wanted to ask one of the biggest things in the book that uh, it seems to inform. Right before the pandemic, you had written Tell Your Children, and you spent you know a decade at the New York Times. And one of the, I think, advantages of this book and virtues of this book is your transparency about your thought process and about how your views changed as the information we had access to changed and as the experiment started playing out and the data started coming in. Um, but the the legacy media totally refused to do the same thing. And I'm curious for your perspective on why that is when we can look back and say, listen, this this um, we, we were sort of, of course, in a fog in the early days of the pandemic. And of course, things were going to change. So to some extent, this is totally understandable and fine that people's concept or people's understanding of of this would change but they haven't taken that at all i mean there's just absolutely no humility and no transparency about things have changed and having spent a decade in uh and more time than that in the legacy media and, and in the new york times itself why do you think that is i mean that is a great question and just you know sort of one last you know just this just touches on it right back in sort of March, April, May, I write in the book, uh, you know, I mentioned the pandemia, of, you know, it looked like the vaccines in Israel and the UK were working really well. And I did wonder, you know, if, if this continues, wow, I'm going to, you know, I am really am going to be the pandemic's strongest man. But, you know, it didn't continue. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's funny that, that, you know, that I think, I would like to think that Derek Thompson is aware of what a fool he is, but, you know, who knows. Um, but so, to, you know, to go to the broader question, of, uh, of why there hasn't been a reconsideration. Um, you know, well, clearly last year, uh, clearly last year, there was a desire to punish Donald Trump in the, right. in the media. And there was, a, there was an awareness that the pandemic, um, you know, was terrible for him, that it was bad for the economy, and that it was bad, uh, you know, that, that he wasn't, he's not a very empathetic figure, and that whatever his strengths as a leader are, they, the, the pandemic did not play to those strengths. And also, as I write in the book, there was a lot of fear in New York City. You know, New York City got hit early and hard. You know, a lot of journalists live in New York City. And so I think, you know, once you sort of get into whatever your, you know, heuristic is, it's hard to change it, yeah. right? I mean, th there's this idea that, I mean, we all, you know, it's been, I guess it's been proven, I'm not a criminologist, that, you know, once the way cases get, um, you know, the way innocent people get convicted is if the detective makes a bad decision early on. And then, you know, pursues only one person, it becomes very hard uh, for, you know, for the police to, to reconsider. And that clearly was happening uh, with the pandemic. Um, mm. And so, so, I mean, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt and just sort of, you know, assume that this is just human nature and, uh, and fear and, you know, and even, uh, and, you know, and, and dislike of Trump, uh, you know, who, who certainly 
you know, does lie uh, regularly. And so it's a difficult person for the media to cover. But, you know, as the months and now years have, have gone on, it's harder and harder to credit that. And, and you know, I, I mean, their motives seem increasingly venal, uh, that, you know, that, that, that it's simply people don't want to stand up. Um, you know, people at the New York Times and elsewhere say, we are not telling the truth anymore. We need mm. to, you know, we, we need to start telling the truth about what we know about the vaccines and what we know about, uh, you know, the failure of masks and lockdowns. We need to start challenging the public health establishment in a way that we've been unwilling to do. But it almost seems like the further we go, the harder it becomes for people inside to say that. Um, and yes, so, so, so I, I don't know if I'm really answering your question because I don't. Because I don't know. There's, it's not like anybody has said to me, here's a recording of, you know, like the, the top people of the New York Times colluding with the top people of the Washington Post and, and taking money from Bill Gates. Again, like I, that's a conspiracy. I don't see conspiracy. I see sort of like human nature and incompetence and venality. Yeah, no, I agree with that reading completely. And it's it's sort of the, I talk about this all the time, the Charles Murray coming apart thesis. Um, you know, people just come from similar backgrounds and the Twitter incentivizes groupthink. Um, and actually, I wanted to ask you about that. You're open actually right in the introduction of your book about your Twitter obsession. <laughs> um, and you write that it, it, you know, strained your marriage and your general like obsession with um, challenging all of the false information that was coming out of the legacy media and coming out of many institutions. Um, and that's an important point. It's not just disinformation in the media. It was coming from major institutions. You write about Neil Ferguson and all of that. It, Twitter in particular seemed to be a poor medium um, to sort of litigate a lot of these questions. But in a way, you also used it prolifically. Um, do you think that Twitter was sort of a net disadvantage in the, the time of coronavirus or a, a net uh, benefit? Well, it was a net disadvantage for the for the world. It was a net advantage for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> you know, I, right? I mean, I, I developed a, a voice and a power that I couldn't have had any other way thanks to Twitter. And, um, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, they... In, in banning me, which they should never have done, and in defaming me, you know, they took away some of that power. Now I have, you know, I have a large substack, but, but I'm still sort of off to the side because Twitter is such an important medium. Um, uh, but in terms of overall, Twitter was, Twitter spread rumor and fear, um, you know, in a way that, you know, as powerful as my voice may or may not have been, you know, I had a few hundred thousand followers. We're talking about people with millions of followers or things that were retweeted more times than anything that I ever wrote that were talking about, you know, how the coronavirus could kill young people and how, you know, masks are the only answer. And just, I mean, Twitter was a, Twitter was a cesspool. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, people, and people tried to shout me down. The only reason they couldn't shout me down was because I didn't, you know, work anywhere they could touch, and so um, you know, but the, but the, the, mm. the censor, you know, the left's dogpiling and censorship on Twitter is a real thing. And by the way, it's quite clear to me that you know one reason that I mean, I say there's two main reasons I've been gener I've generated such anger. One is you know one is due to my tone, which as I you know as I write in the in the book, you know, could be not not so much confrontational as sarcastic. And occasionally, I, I know that it probably seemed as though I was making not not, not making light, but not treating the, you know the real people who were dying with sufficient respect. Um, and as I say, like I, I think because the hysteria 
and the, to me, the over-the-top, the fact that the media was sort of seizing on every single death it could find, my voice was a necessary was a necessary corrective. Now, as I also say, that may have just been an excuse for me being a jerk. But the other clear reason that people were angry at me at places like the Times, um, and I think this has actually gotten worse, uh, is that, you know, I was a class trader, right? And, yeah. and I'm not really joking when I say that. I went to Yale. I, I went to, you know, I worked for the Times for many years. I wrote stories that were sort of reliably um, investigated, you know, into into big companies. Like they should, they thought that I should be one of them. And just like with the cannabis stuff, they they had no idea what they didn't know. And so it's painful and annoying to them that somebody who they think should be on their side, you know, is is is, is espousing these. You know, I, I wouldn't even say they're conservative. They view them as conservative points of view. And frankly, you know, the success of the Substack has made this worse because you know you can. You can now, and people have on Twitter, yeah. done the math and sort of figured out what I might be making, <laughs> and um, and so I, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to ascribe jealousy to people, but but there's certainly an awareness that um, you know that that I'm a pretty well paid journalist these days, and so the efforts to censor me have failed, and um, yeah. No, that's a good point, and it's it's a point about the market rewarding um, people who fill that demand um, and the, the demand for the Substack. It's all not all. There, there's the one woman, Heather, the professor, but everybody else is conservative or independent, and uh, it, you know, and, and 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 we have huge audiences now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and Rogan is a good example, and, and that's why it's yes. in, like so important. I mean, obviously, he's at a whole different level, right? But the, you know, he and Tucker, I mean, Tucker has an enormous audience, but Rogan's audience is even another size up. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a, yeah, it's an, yeah, a hundred percent. Are you still pursuing your lawsuit against Twitter, by the way? And, and do you have an update on that? If so? Um, I do not have an update. Um, <laughs> I will have an update shortly, I would say. Um, Good. Uh, you know, these, yeah. these, these companies, um, you know, not just Twitter, but Section 230, uh, you know, does provide them with with strong, you know, the way with strong protection. Now, I, I think I have a really good claim if I if I choose to bring it, and I think that uh, you know, two thirty is not that you know it's been interpreted as this absolute bubble, um, and uh, and it's clearly not that. So uh, so we'll see what happens. We're happy to be sponsored today by the Novus Society at Donors Trust, a program for aspiring philanthropists that can help you get started as a young giver and connect you to like-minded peers. So with the holidays around the corner, you are likely starting to reflect on all you've achieved this year and even maybe those things that slipped through the cracks. As you begin this period of reflection, consider taking another look at what you're doing with your charitable giving. Do you normally wait until the end of the year and frantically punch in credit card numbers before the ball drops? Maybe you missed your year-end giving entirely. That is until New Year's resolutions are all anyone is talking about and you vow that this year you will make time for giving. If that sounds like you, you should talk to the folks at the Novus Society at Donors Trust. Novus Society is a program for young philanthropists under 40 to dip their feet into strategic charitable giving so their gifts can make a larger impact all while making things easier and simpler. With Novus Society, you get a team of trusted philanthropic advisors to help you learn how to develop your giving goals and strategy for long-term success. A community of peers who share your principles, as well as access to the fastest growing giving tool on the market, a donor-advised fund. 
Donor-advised funds can help you simplify your giving as well as maximize your tax advantage. Make giving a priority this year by letting Novus Society at Donors Trust help you level up your charitable goals. Go to novussocietyorg slash Federalist. That's novussocietyorg slash Federalist to see how Novus Society can help you grow your impact as a young philanthropist. So if you're old enough, you'll remember how back in the early 2000s, Blackberries just revolutionized the way we communicate. But it wasn't long before Steve Jobs and Apple, of course, thought they could outperform them with a phone of their own. In an all-new season of Business Wars, you'll hear about how Blackberries and iPhones battled for their shares of the emerging mobile phone market. It seems standard now, but Blackberry's ability to allow users to text and send emails was a major game changer at the time. They really were the first mobile devices that could sync work emails to a phone. So for the first time, people weren't chained to their desks. So as the gold standard, every power player from D.C. to New York City to L.A. had a BlackBerry. But just when they thought they had the market cornered in 2007, Apple came in and launched the iPhone. On Business Wars, iPhone versus BlackBerry, you'll hear how BlackBerry, the phone favored by presidents, Wall Street, and top government officials, spurred Apple to push the envelope by developing technology that would usher in the future of phones, putting the power of smartphones in the pockets of billions worldwide. This is a fascinating story. There's so much relevance to today when we look back and see how this battle developed. I can't recommend it enough. Listen to the Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. So like I said earlier, I'm sort of, um, I'm not one of the people that's really deep in the the granular data of this, but one thing that I think has become conventional wisdom is that the uh, the CDC's biggest mistake early in the pandemic was the testing failure and, and the failure to um, develop and distribute accurate tests and all of that stuff. But you actually challenge that and you say, even if we had an early uh, ability to detect the uh, to, to detect the spread, it wouldn't have made a huge difference. And I'm curious because I think a lot of people, other than sort of Trump's temperament and tone and everything, would say that was the biggest sort of substantive mistake that his administration made. What do you think Trump's biggest mistake was in 2020 as the virus started spreading? Uh, I mean, I think his biggest mistake by far was not not framing this differently. I mean, mm. again, within the first couple of weeks, he should have said. We we're going to manage this as a medical problem. Um, you know, once once it became clear that New York City wasn't going to collapse, he should have, you know he should have said, "Yeah, we are we are going to um, you know go about your lives. Basically, we're going to do what we can to protect uh, you know protect healthcare workers and protect the people in nursing homes. Uh, but most of you are not at severe risk from this, and I don't want this to be uh, you know the focus of of our lives indefinitely." Um, now, you know, we're going to be more like sweet, um, mm. but, uh, but he, uh, you know, he, I think, I mean, I don't know Donald Trump, but, but he, but that would have required a, you know, a, a sort of a monumental strength of will mm. discipline. that he faced a, a discipline, but, and, and like, and, a, and, a, and a, he would have had to be DeSantis, you know, DeSantis said, <laughs> I know best and I'm the president or, you know, I'm the governor, I'm the elected official. It's my responsibility. I'm going to do X or Y, and uh, and and 
you can give me advice, but this is the course I'm going to follow. And so, uh, you know, Donald Trump could have done that on a national level, but he, uh, but he, uh, he was not strong enough to do so. In terms of the testing, um, I, you know, look, Germany, it's funny, the Atlantic, the Atlantic, which is, a, you know, they, they certainly kicked at me earlier this year. But, <laughs> you know, as I, as I say in the book, like, they, 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 you know, they were a reliable whipping post for me for a long time. And, you know, this is one of these times when I wish I hit Twitter. They, they've been, it's like, it's like the Atlantic almost is a, it's a leading contrary indicator. When they write something is going well somewhere, you can be sure that in a matter of weeks or months, it will blow up. So, so the reason I mentioned all this is a couple of weeks ago, they wrote about how well Germany was doing. And one of the, you know, big successes of Germany is you could literally get essentially free, free testing until October and then, you know, very low cost testing uh, before, after that. Um, and in the UK too, the UK, you can literally, uh, you know, fill out a form and the government will send you free at home testing. Well, the UK and Germany both have massive outbreaks right now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the, 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 the virus will spread, okay? And most people who get it are mildly symptomatic or, or in some cases, asymptomatic. And that may be even more true these days, you know, if, if they still have some vaccine protection. So there's tons of people walking around who don't even know they have this. I mean, here's yet another statistic about this. When the, you know, when the Dutch freaked out and tested yeah. those two flights that came back from South Africa a couple of days ago, they found that 10% of the people on board had the coronavirus. And only, only one-fifth of those people, only 2% of those people had Omicron. The others had Delta. So, so there's, there's just a huge number of people walking around with the coronavirus. It, it go, you know, this virus will spread until everyone has gotten it and recovered from it. Or, you know, or you know, for a few unfortunate cases, died from it. Um, and that, you know, that was true before the vaccines and the vaccines uh, clearly have made no difference in that calculus. So, um, so testing, look, you know, Scott Gottlieb, who, you know, is playing the Tom Friedman role, Peter, he's the, he's the voice, voice of the establishment talking to the establishment. You know, he's the former FDA director. Um, he's on the Pfizer board. He's reliably like, he'll say whatever, you know, the powers that be are thinking at the moment. So he wrote a book called Uncontrolled Spread. And my joke about the book was I thought that was about his television appearances. But <laughs> See, this is why people don't like me. Or do like me. Um, but, but so, so, so it got me, it's funny. The book is actually all about testing. It's all about how if we just had enough tests early on, if the CDC just hadn't been so completely incompetent, we would have had the right tests and everything would have been fine. The problem is that the Israelis, the all over Europe, the Italians, the Germans, they did tons of testing last year. Last year, I'm talking about not now. I'm talking about the original PCR tests. They, they got them out very quickly. They got a lot of them, and it didn't matter. Um, uh, you know, the, Europe had, had you know, big outbreaks last year. So the only country, you know, for some reason, uh, you know, China seems to have avoided outbreaks. Who knows why? Assuming you can even believe the data, which nobody knows if you can. Japan, you know, they've had outbreaks, but it hasn't been at the same level. Um, you know, South Korea had sort of come and gone. But aside from East Asia, um, you know, and, and, and Africa, frankly, and, you know, Africa may just be because the population is younger there, um, uh, you know, Africa and the Middle East. Um, but, but everywhere else in the world, every strategy, it's sort of like a choose your own adventure where every strategy leads you to go off the cliff at the end. Mm -hmm. By the way, I have not used that before. I'm going to steal that for myself. Uh, <laughs> you know, like every path 
you die at the end. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually find that analysis really persuasive. And like I said, the testing thing was a bit of conventional wisdom that I think has really solidified itself into already the historical narrative, which is also one of the interesting things about reading Pandemia. It's that it's, it reads like history, but it's such recent history. It, it's sort of strange to relive things that have happened less than two years ago in this sense, because the way that time has all like become a flat circle. Um, but I wanted to ask also um, about this this um this question of the boosters and i this applies to the vaccine in general I, one way to phrase it is how would you describe the known unknowns about the vaccine itself and the boosters and, and your interview on on rogan was so interesting because i'm just sort of like i said i, I i'm not into the, the sort of granular details on this but you get into this a little bit in your interview with rogan and i thought you sounded extremely persuasive uh, in that conversation with joe and i'm curious as to how you would describe the that sort of known unknowns when it comes to because i think that's sort of what prevents a lot of people from getting vaccinated is that they say you know listen these these short-term clinical trials look great but what's going to happen 50 years from now is the best the vaccine going to have any effect on me 50 years from now which may seem ridiculous that might sound ridiculous to anthony fauci but it is a very real perspective that people have and that question hasn't been answered for anybody let alone now that they're supposed to continue putting this in their bodies on you know potentially a yearly basis um so how would you describe those well first of all it's not yearly i mean it's six months and the british are saying three months so right i mean how much time do you have uh and i'm not really joking like that and unfortunately the known unknowns have only worsened uh since the you know since the first big trials were uh you know were, were completed um which is not what you would hope would happen uh you know there are unknowns around uh the the, the lipid nanoparticle which is that you know the ball of fat that um that, that surrounds the mRNA, uh, you know, and, and I can sort of classify these to you as, you know, very unlikely or somewhat unlikely or we just don't know, um, you know, what, what about repeated dosing uh, with, with this LMP? Like, is it, is it something, you know, that we should be concerned about? Is the body going to respond, you know, sort of, will we have some kind of uncontrolled immune response to that over time with multiple doses? We don't know. Um, uh, is it possible uh, you know, that, that the mRNA, uh, you know, can somehow integrate with your DNA. And this is a very unlikely one, by the way. This, if we're gonna, you know, I mean, I shouldn't even sort of bring it up because it's so speculative and unlikely. But the companies initially said that's absolutely impossible. And now there's some sort of theoretical evidence that, you know, that that, that can actually happen. But, you know, I should, let's, let's, say, let's say that one is sort of, you know, extremely unlikely. Um, but... But far more uh, problematic is the idea that, uh, you know, spike protein, you know, so your body, the, the, the vaccine is very, very good at getting your body to produce spike protein. And, uh, and, and as a result, you produce a ton of antibodies, many more antibodies than, um, than you produce in response to natural infection. And, and this was viewed as a good thing. The problem is there's now, there's a theory, and again, this is, you know, this is a theory that has not been proven, that you may have... Um, essentially an immune response to the antibodies that you produce. There's something called anti-idiotype antibodies. And that those antibodies will effectively be able to bind to receptors in the same way that the spike protein initially was. Now, I know I'm getting into the weeds here, but, but you, you need to, I guess the broader point is um, you, you should understand that this Oh, here's, let me give you one more. And this is no, I would say this one is actually much more uh, uh, like 
This is this is still speculative, but but it's much more agreed on by uh, you know virologists. So the antibodies that you that you produce in response to the natural infection aren't just about the spike protein. Okay, you produce antibodies to what's called the nucleocapsid, which is essentially the shell of the virus, and it's also clear that natural infection and recovery, you you have antibodies. Um, that develop for months, okay? Memory B cells and T cells, which are in your you know, lymphatic system, um, they will continue to develop and, and improve, honestly, uh, over, a, uh, it, 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 now they've looked for you know, up to a year. And so we know that natural infection with uh, SARS and recovery, the original SARS, not SARS-CoV-2, many of those people appear to be immune even now, you know, from infection and recovery. And, and so, it looks like natural infection and recovery leads to a broader spectrum of, um, of antibodies. I mean, we know that. And also to better long-term, what's called adaptive immunity. Okay. And, and so when people, when, and this is one of the things that, you know, and again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but the idea that they have promoted that natural immunity is not superior to vaccine-generated immunity in this case, um, it, it's inexplicable. Okay, the two things that should make you worry the most are the fact that they won't admit that and the fact that they won't admit that, the, that COVID is not dangerous to healthy kids and that therefore the risk benefit for vaccination for them, any risk is too much risk for them because, because they are just not at, at severe risk or really any risk from the virus. And, and you know, there's just even more data on that today or not today, earlier this week on, on Monday out of Germany. So, so, so there's just a ton we don't know. But what we do know is that, is that the public health authorities lied. They lied and they were wrong. They said that the vaccines would end this. They said it very explicitly last winter and spring. And they did not say that multiple doses would be needed over a short period of time. I mean, beyond the second dose. And they did not say, you know what, like, yes, there's still going to be tons of infection and transmission. But, you know, we think there's going to be some benefit to severe disease and death, so you should go get it anyway. They did not say you're going to have to continue wearing a mask after you're vaccinated. Um, you know, they overpromised. They were caught short by what happened in the, you know, in the summer in Israel and what has happened everywhere else since. And so they, um, they you know, they need to admit that. They have, they have essentially no credibility left with a, with a lot of the population. And the first, the first step to getting that back would be admitting that they didn't tell the truth mm, or, that they, yeah. you know, or that they were wrong. How about that? No, absolutely. And their allies in the press as well. I mean, it's just to, to echo that. It's, um, I think, makes it so much more difficult to convey these, these messages and to convey any accurate information um, because it's falling on deaf ears and, and reasonably so. I think it is so interesting that you went into the pandem pandemic having recently written Tell Your Children, and you were at the Times when you wrote that book. Um, no, it was and, not. It was not. Oh, you weren't. Okay, so that was right after. Uh, okay. But go on, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so no, no, that's helpful. Um, so you talked about how writing that book brought you to this realization about this partisanship in legacy media that you hadn't um, necessarily detected at that scale before. I'm really curious about how that experience um, set you up 
to write Pandemia and to be this sort of uh, contrarian voice over the course of, of the pandemic. What were the kind of key realizations coming out of that book, um, which again gets into you know challenging the narrative of experts and cannabis has been around forever, uh, but they're, they're speaking of unknowns. Um, you know, there, there are things that are showing up in research as you document uh, that people weren't being you know forthright about. So how do you think that experience teed you up to, to write Pandemia and to be a contrarian voice in the pandemic. Sure. So I mean, I, you know, I think it's, it's you know, it's actually interesting you say uh, against the experts, but in that case, it's the opposite, actually, or not quite the opposite, but but uh, but different in that I would say the psychiatric consensus around cannabis, the, the consensus of psychiatrists, that is, is that cannabis is a you know, is it, it can be can be a you know can cause psychosis and uh, you know and can cause schizophrenia in, in some vulnerable people. Okay, there, when uh, that was that was not me. The reason the book you know is is so strong. The reason Tell Your Children is so strong is because it tells you what the scientific consensus is. Okay, mm-hmm. and then on top of that, I wrote, well, you know, we know psychosis causes violence, and so you see these you see these cases. Um, sorry, I, I, I hope you can hear me and there's not too much background noise. Oh, no, you're good. <laughs> okay. Um, so you see these cases where people had, you know, had smoked or, you know, or smoked or used cannabis and, or THC and committed these horrible crimes. So that was sort of the sizzle that got a lot of attention. But the stake of the, of the book, this idea that cannabis can have sort of severe mental health impacts, I mean, to me, that's not even a debate in the psychiatric community. Okay. It's just something that they don't like talking about. Because it makes them, you know, it, it, they, it, because the, the, the cultural, uh, you know, hype around cannabis is so powerful that they, you know, that they don't want to seem out of touch. And, you know, it's almost embarrassing to tell the truth about this. Um, and so, so, so when I wrote that book, I, you know, I had not written a nonfiction book since I'd left the New York Times. I'd written novels. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of thought that the response to it would be along the lines of Malcolm Gladwell's response to it, which mm-hmm. was... You know, this is interesting. This guy's a serious thinker. Uh, you know, this is serious research. I don't necessarily agree with all of it. And by the way, probably it's just, you know, the drugs should still be legal. But, but let's talk about this seriously. You know, Glad- and, and, and Gladwell, you know, two days before the book came out, wrote a New Yorker piece that basically said that. But that's not what happened. What happened was a bunch of people, either, you know, the people who sort of in the canon, not just in the advocacy community, but sort of in the journalism cannabis advocacy community, people at places like Vice and Vox who, you know, have been campaigning for drug legalization openly, basically, for, you know, for 10 years or more. Right, right. to savage the book. And, 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 and you know, they, they repeated about 800 times that I didn't understand that correlation is not causation. Well, I do understand that correlation all by itself doesn't prove causation, okay? But that... But it's funny, actually, when people say correlation is not causation, that in the public in the public mind seems to have become correlation is the opposite of causation. Well, that's that's not true either. Correlation <laughs> is evidence of causation. It's not it's not proof, but it's evidence. And you should you should when you see strong correlations, start to explore why they're happening. So 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 so, so those places just savaged me. And then places like the Times. Uh, you know, where I worked, where they knew me, refused to cover the book or or write about, you know, what the findings were for the most part. And, um, and I found that just so bizarre because, again, you can say, like, we think cannabis should be legal. There's too many, you know, too many black people get arrested for this drug and it's not right. And, you know, 
uh, uh, you know, you shouldn't have your life ruined because you have a joint in your hand in the street. Um, you can say all that. By the way, no one has their life ruined because they have a joint in their hand in the street. But, you know, you, you can say all that and still acknowledge that this is a real problem that has worsened with the with legalization and worsened with the, you know, sort of impact of, of super high potency cannabis and THC. And they just refuse to do it. And so the book was either savaged or ignored, except by psychiatrists okay, and, and parents. Like I heard, you know, I know the book is correct because I did the research and more research has come out since. And so when this started, and, and this was my, unfortunately, it was the scales coming off my eyes where I realized that, that uh, if the political stakes were high enough, the science would just be ignored. Now, with, with the coronavirus, it's somewhat different because the science is emerging. Right. I mean, there, there are legitimate debates about, you know, how do we transmit this or how, what, you know, what are the risks to, you know, to elderly people? How many people will really die worldwide if everyone gets this? Right. So so we can, you know, those those there are questions that are unanswered. But it was very clear very early on that that it wasn't as dangerous as, you know, we first thought. I'm talking about. By April, it was clear that the, you know, the risk estimates in January and February were overstated. And it was also clear, even in March, that, that, that this was incredibly age-stratified and that the public health authorities were going to try to scare everybody. And instead of questioning why they were doing that, instead of challenging them, the media went along with it. And, and I thought to myself, I just saw this play out last year. I know that this groupthink is real. And I know that there's almost nobody who has either, you know, the, the standing to challenge it. Um, and, and I'm going to say what I think. And I don't, you know, I can do that. I don't work for the Times. And, um, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? And, you know, it turned out the worst thing that could happen to me was I could get 350,000 followers on Twitter. <laughs> right. And, and, and go to Substack and have a very successful Substack and have a successful book. <laughs> Um, I'm also I just sort of want to wrap up on a point you make that I think gets to just a lot of what you write about in general, but it's, it's a slightly deeper point. You write that we have medicalized our societies and that we have an expectation in contemporary America. And I think for some understandable reasons that we can quote cheat the reaper. Can you talk more about that? It's, it's an interesting observation and I do think it's at the heart of a lot of the panic here. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I thought one of the one of the fascinating things in, in covering the drug industry for the Times in you know in the in the in the aughts. So these days, drug companies are incredibly focused on sort of niche, expensive diseases. Um, you know, a, a cancer, cancer immuno oncology, where you can you know call, charge people or charge insurance companies a hundred thousand uh, dollars. You know, for a two month treatment that might prolong life by two or three months. I mean, it's incredible the pricing, and and you know, there's a real risk. Uh, you know that uh, we're going to bankrupt our system over time if we if we don't sort of make better decisions about some of these therapies. But back then, when I was covering the paper, sort of night covering the industry for the paper and really for the for the 10 or 20 years before that the idea had been the opposite which is mass uh mass you know pills right so like we're gonna we're gonna get everybody in the world to take prozac and we'll, mm. we'll charge you know uh three dollars a day that's a thousand dollars a year um and uh you know a thousand dollars a year times 10 million people is 10 million dollars okay like that's a that's a good that's a good 
you know, that's a good product for us. Um, and, you know, and so, and that went along with consumer advertising, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and, you know, very heavy promotion of these drugs, the doctors. Okay. And so what I saw was the companies were just incredibly incentivized, uh, to, um, to, you know, to oversell the benefits and undersell the risks of these medicines. A lot of which, listen, untreated depression is, is terrible. Like high cholesterol can kill people, right? So, so, you know, these are real conditions that need treatment, but the companies, um, you know, were not really trustworthy in the way they presented the risk benefit analysis. Okay. By the way, this is a, this is a subset of the larger medical issue, but I, but the reason I'm focusing on it is this is what we have seen uh, on steroids with the vaccines, right? We've seen a product that is intended to be given essentially to everyone in the world, including healthy people, you know, and and uh, and may have you know long-term impacts, and is produced by for-profit companies that don't that have no liability, okay, no liability. That they don't, and they don't even have to market this thing. Governments are marketing it, and in some cases, forcing it. And you know, even the sort of standard, uh, uh, you know, uh, discussion of risk that you see, you know, with a pill that a, that a drug company is selling on TV is gone from this. And you know, the doctors, instead of responding to you know drug company uh, uh, salespeople coming into their offices, in this case, they're facing pressure from. From the government, from you know, state medical boards, and, and uh, you know, and the Surgeon General, people, people saying like, you need to talk about this in the way we want you to talk about this. So, so the vaccines are every problem in the you know, sort of American and worldwide pharmaceutical industry blown up, um, mm. to a, you know, to in, in an unthinkable way. And we, and, and so the, the industry, not the industry, the, the people pushing this made a bet. That that was going to be fine because the vaccines were fine, and they they have lost that bet. They have already lost that bet. It is clear because even even a small number of side effects, and there's more. It appears there's more than a small number of side effects if you, you know, believe the reporting data at all, compared to the fact that the vaccine's efficacy fades very quickly. You know that that's a that's that's not what they promised. So so that. But if you pull back even further, and you ask me, you know, you started to ask me about medicalization, the medicalization of society. Yes. I think, you know, I, I think this has happened everywhere, but it's the worst in the United States because we have this huge for-profit healthcare sector. Um, you know, we are encouraged to treat everything as an illness, and mm. uh, and and so, uh, you know, unfortunately, the cure is often worse than the disease. And you see this with all these sort of quasi, you know, hard to diagnose, hard to treat conditions, whether it's fibromyalgia or chronic Lyme disease. Um, you know, that seem to mainly affect, you know, you know, sort of middle-aged, uh, you, know, you know, middle-aged people, um, uh, you know, who are generally have oftentimes depressed and, you know, middle income or, you know, or upper middle income, uh, you know, or wealthy, but they're, they're, you know, poor, poor people have real problems and don't, and don't have these, and don't have these problems. And, uh, and, and, and again, with opioids, same thing. We medicalize pain, and that's been a disastrous decision. I'm not saying pain isn't, uh, you know, something that we should try to treat. But when you when you say the first response to chronic pain is an opioid, uh, you, you cause disastrous problems in society and for the users. And so, um, and so, 
we, I don't know how we get out of this because, you know, the healthcare industry is now 20% of the United States. And the bigger it gets, the more these incentives are there and the harder it is for people to stand up and say, this is insane. We are, we are, we are killing ourselves with kindness here. And, you know, and the coronavirus has both, you know, shown a light on this and made it worse. And so, I mean, you know, and unfortunately, pandemia, you know, pandemia is 400 pages. This, this aspect of it, I really only got to touch on. But I mean, mm-hmm. this, this is its own book. Right. You should write that book, Alex. <laughs> well, I got to write about the vaccines first. <laughs> oh, I look forward to that. Um, Alex Berenson, author of Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government Rights and, and Lives. Alex, you just mentioned it's 400 pages, but it is a very readable 400 pages um, and offers a, just such a helpful counterbalance to the narrative that we've been bludgeoned with over the head for the last two years. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you. Uh, and, and, you know, I uh, let's hope we're not talking about this in a year. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Make sure you also subscribe to Alex's Substack. It's called Unreported Truths, and you can find it at Substack.com. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until Thanks, then, Emily. be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Bye.